All right, hello everyone. Apologies for being a couple minutes late. I, I, I just, I was sort of scrambling there at the end and I wasn't sure I had everything turned on and so I went back and rechecked everything and sure enough, I had forgotten to press record on the audio device. So it's a good thing that my sense of, I, I just thought I, I, I'm forgetting something. And so I'm a couple minutes late. Apologies for that. All right. Uh, great to see everybody signing in so quick. Hello, Laura. Hello, Karen. Hello, Allison. Hello, D. Winter. Hello, CJ Girl. Hello, Ruby. Hello, Roz. All right. Terminator Wagner. Oh, I like that. Hey, Victor. Hey, Johnny. Great to see you. Cassandra, always great to see you. Allison. All right. Welcome, everybody. I hope you've had a marvelous day today. I've had a, I've had a great day. I've, I've had a really, really good day today. Uh, super excited to have gone to the climbing gym this morning and, and got uh, some climbing in. And I even managed to talk Violetta into going with me. Uh, she had a couple other things she wanted to do, but I said, come with me, please. And I sort of laid it on pretty thick. And uh, then she decided to come and she's a really good climber. She's super strong. We actually just did, she'd be a little embarrassed that I'm telling you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We actually just did a hang test for my wife the other day just to see. Um, there's these sort of benchmark tests from this really fascinating guy named uh, Dr. Peter Attia. He's kind of one of the world's foremost longevity specialists. Anyway, he runs a clinic, a longevity clinic, and they have these benchmark tests where they they have like 10 or 12 tests for people in their 30s and then 40s and then 50s and then 60s to see how you are with regards to mobility, strength, endurance, et cetera. And one of their tests is a strength test, and it's just how long you can hang from a pull-up bar, just a dead hang. So just grab the pull, not pull-ups, just a dead hang on a pull-up bar. And Violetta, my wife, is extremely strong, like very, very strong, especially for her, her weight. And so I, anyway, probably a week ago, I had her do this uh, strength test. And she, I think the benchmark for a 40-year-old woman, and Violetta's in her, I think she's 47, 46 or 47. So the benchmark is 90 seconds. Okay, so that's what she's trying to do. Their benchmark for a 40-year-old woman, and she's older than that, was 90 seconds. Anyway, she managed to hang for two and a half minutes. So what would that be? 60 plus 60, that's 120 plus 30, 150 seconds. She's extremely strong and a very good climber. But for some reason that I don't fully understand, I have to kind of twist her arm, her strong arm, <laughs> to make her come climbing with me. But when she does, she always has a great time. So anyway, that's a long way of saying I had a great day because I got to do something that I love with the person that I love the most, which is my wife. And she's upstairs watching this right now. So babe, thank you for coming climbing with me today. I love you. We went out and, and got, I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but anyway, we went out today and bought her a pair of snowshoes. She really wanted a pair of snowshoes. And so we had a bit of a bargain, a bit of an arrangement. And if she went climbing with me, we would go snowshoe shopping. That's actually kind of hard to say. Snowshoe shopping for her. And we found her a great pair of snowshoes. So anyway, she wants it to snow. I want it to stop snowing, so we're praying at cross purposes with one another. I want to go climbing. She wants to go snowshoeing, which is all a very long way of saying I've had a great day, and 
I actually had a productive day in addition to going climbing. I, I had a really great day. I won't go into all the details of that because I've already probably bored you to death with these details, but welcome everybody to SC with DA. I'm not gonna make any announcements except don't forget to uh, go and get a shirt if you want to. Uh, they're awesome and I can't wait to order mine. I haven't done it yet. So I'm a little, I'm kind of half reminding myself uh, when I say, don't forget to order a shirt, order a shirt. I'm saying to me, don't forget to order a shirt. So go to typesandsymbols.com. That's the only announcement I have to make. I think um, I'm going to pray and we're going to get into this chapter titled Consecration. And this is another shortest chapter like yesterday's chapter Confession, which was five and a half pages. Today's chapter is only six pages. So we're probably going to read through the whole thing again. And uh, maybe the program will be a little shorter than yesterday. We'll see. We'll see. And I'll, I'll let you know right up front, I am strongly conflicted about my word tonight. And it's, it's a toss-up between two, but I am not going to violate my own strictures and rules that you can only have one word. I have made some allowances for people like Hannah and others who often find it difficult to reduce down to a single word. But I tell you, I'm really conflicted here, and I'm right in the middle between two words, and maybe over the course of the next hour plus of teaching and reading, maybe I'll tip into one of the other. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to tip into one or the other because I cannot come to the end of this and have two words. I just can't let that happen. So welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. Let's start with prayer. What a great chapter this is. I mean, the book is amazing. I, I, that repentance chapter was an 11 out of 10. And I thought the confession chapter was a 10 out of 10. I think today's chapter is a 10 out of 10, maybe even an 11 out of 10. We'll have to see. Let's pray and get into this. Father in heaven, we love you. We know that's not the big story, though. That's not the big story. The big story is that you love us. And Father, any love that we have that flows back to you is a mere reflection, a faint reflection of the love that you have showered upon us, that you have lavished upon us in the plan of salvation, in Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so, Father, we want to be consecrated. We want to be set apart to you and for you and by you. And so, Father, as we go through this incredible chapter of this amazing little book, Father, such a small book, but so much goodness here, uh, Lord, may we come away with a better biblical understanding and a very practical understanding of what it means to be consecrated. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. All right, first of all, let's let's note that the word consecration is a decidedly religious word, right? Like, I don't think you will ever hear... First of all, you don't hear the word consecration in just sort of ordinary common parlance. At least I don't, right? It just doesn't... It doesn't it's a religious word. That's the point. And the reason it's a religious word, if you actually look at the word consecration, it, it really is a smashing together, a juxtaposition of two words, and the first one is con, C-O-N, which in the Latin basically means with or together with, and then you have sort of a, a, a shortened version of the word sacred, right? You can sort of hear it, consacred, consacred, or so the word literally means with holiness, or or together with holiness, or, you know, sacred here is a stand-in for the word holy. 
And so if you actually look the word up, this is what it means, right? That's sort of the etymology of it. The word means to declare or to make something holy or to declare or make something set apart, something sacred. And so the chapter is, as we're moving through these steps with Christ, right? Even though our book is titled Steps to Christ, I really like the idea. We've, we've been with Jesus since chapter one. So these steps with Christ, these steps in Christ, which are also, in some sense, also steps to Christ. But here we've, we've, we've repented. We have, what was that? The sinner's need of Christ, and then we've repented. And then we had yesterday's chapter, which was confession. And then, and then now, and, and they're not totally sequential, obviously. There's not a strict chronology here. And you shouldn't read the book that way as a strict chronology. You can read it as a, as a general chronology, right? Like these are the steps, but it's not like they're perfectly formulaic or sequential. No, there's overlap here. And in the sort of sense in which they are chronological, we are now, we've turned, we've confessed, and now we are, how do we, that's the question, how do we set ourselves aside for holiness? Hey, do you want to come say hi, Bernice? She does not want to come and say hi. She's right over here. She's literally right off camera right now. You could see her, but she's unwilling. Someday, will you come and say hi? Okay, someday, but just not today. That way you can all see who this wonderful Bernice is that has let us take over her basement. Bernice, your basement is consecrated. It's set aside for a, she says, hallelujah, hallelujah. Set aside for a holy purpose. That's what the word consecrated means. So, so in the sort of sequence of our book, Steps to Christ, we're now asking the question, how do we set ourselves aside for holiness, for God's purposes and God's will? That's what the chapter is about. And wow, this is a great chapter. Let's get into it. First of all, I love the fact, and I hope you do too, that the first two words of the chapter are God's promise. You have, you have a headphones in your ear, Bernice. Are you listening to me right now? You're, are you listening to me in the headphones? In the headphones and in person. Is there a delay? <laughs> There's voices in your head. That is so cute. What are you getting? What are you doing down here? In your own basement. You getting milk? <laughs> She's getting milk. All right. I love the fact that the first two words here are God's promise. Just feel that. Just lean into that. Relax into that. Feel that right now. This is a chapter on how to be set apart for God's will and God's purposes, that is to say, for holiness. And the chapter opens with two words, God's promise. Feel that. Feel that. And the scriptural promise that's quoted, Jeremiah 29, 13, is one of the great and most loved and most known promises in the Old Testament, right? God's promise, I love that, is, and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Okay, I'm just going to let you know right up front. One of my words that I'm, you know, really stuck between two words is already in that first promise. And it's going to come up again. Here it is. Next paragraph. The whole heart must be yielded to God or the change can never be worked in us by which we are restored to his likeness. By nature, we are alienated from God, cut off from God, right? The Bible says we are by nature the children of God or the children of wrath, excuse me. So, so we've already talked about that. We're not going to go deep on that here, but this is a really pointed way of saying it. By nature, we are alienated from God. 
The Holy Spirit describes this alienated condition in such words as these. And then she quotes from several passages here, Ephesians 2, Isaiah 1, and 2 Timothy 2. Uh, Dead in trespasses and sins, sins, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faints, no soundness is in it. We are held fast in the snare of Satan, taken captive by him to do his will. All right, so she sort of marshals several passages there biblically to sort of let us know that when she says that by nature we are alienated from God, she's standing on a firm biblical foundation. She continues, but God, hallelujah, desires to heal us, to set us free. But since this requires an entire transformation, a renewing of our whole nature, we must yield ourselves wholly to him. All right, well, the the first two paragraphs here, I guess the, the first paragraph is really just a single sentence, quoting from Jeremiah 29, 13. But but the first two paragraphs here make it abundantly clear what this chapter is going to be about. And there are so many synonyms for one of the words that's one of the words. And I'll just tell you right up front, that word is all, A-L-L. I don't know if you noticed or not, but that word is used over and over and over again. It comes up in so many different contexts. In fact, let me just show you my notes here. Look at that on this page right here. This page right here is, and you can sort of see it there, this page right here, all of what you see there is all of the times in this chapter where the word all or some synonym of all is used, and you get it right in this second paragraph. Let me just show you. The whole heart, the whole head, the whole heart, an entire transformation, the whole nature, holy to him, which is all her way of describing what she did in paragraph one, which is, if you search for me with all your heart. So all of those synonyms there, all, whole, 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 entire, whole, holy, not holy, H-O-L-Y, set apart, which we are also talking about, but holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely. So, so that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in two paragraphs. We know where we're going. We know where we're going, and that is, how is it that we can be, in the, in the language here is healed, set free, renewed, right? And renewed is exactly what it sounds like, to be new, to be new again, right? Jesus would say to Nicodemus, to be born again. That is to say, to have a new start, to start over. And one of the things, I mean, the main thing that this chapter is about is that that is not something we can do half-baked or half-cooked. It's all or nothing, right? We'll talk about why that is. At, At one point, she's actually going to say expressly, you can't You can't be half and half, half for God and half for the world. Well, why is that? Well, I guess I'll just mention it right now. One of the reasons is because anthropologically, we are a whole being. We reject anthropological dualism, which is the Greek notion, and not just Greek, but they were certainly the the sort of um, initial communicators of this idea or articulators of this idea, but the idea that, that humans in terms of our essential nature and ontology, are bifurcated. We are made up of body and spirit. Body and spirit. And that bifurcation or that dualism, anthropological dualism, is such that the body is bound to the earth and it is is subject to all of the earthly and carnal desires. It's less than. And the spirit is eternal. It is is, is the, the real essence of what we are. So that there is a a war, 
a, a, a dualism within, an incompatibility within human nature. This is Greek dualism or anthropological dualism, sometimes called uh, uh, yeah, Hellenistic dualism. So, so the Bible rejects this. The Bible does not in any way subscribe to the notion that we are, we are two things. We are one thing, and the thing that we are is we are anthropologically whole. We are monists. That is to say, we're not dualists, two, we're monists, one. And, and that is the reason why if we're going to be all, if we're going to be for God, we have to be all for God. We can't have part of us for God. One part of our nature is for God and the other part not so much, and we're sort of bifurcated or split down the middle. And so this chapter is going to drive again and again. In fact, the whole point of the chapter is that we are wholly, entirely, all, completely. There's a number of synonyms that will come up here, and you'll see it over and over again. So there's one of my words, possible words. Now, one of the other words we've already read twice, twice, on page one. And I, I won't yet say what that is, but it comes up over seven times. And then there's a ton of synonyms for that word as well. It, just quickly, I wonder if anybody here has a guess. As No, 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 we'll do that later. We'll do that later. I'm trying to motor along here. Okay, so the language here of God wants to heal us, God wants to set us free, God wants to renew us, right? Our whole nature, an entire transformation. Turning to the next page, the warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God requires a struggle, but the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. Okay, so much going on here. There's our word holiness. That's literally what the word consecration means, right? With the sacred or with the holy. And you might be a little confused. It's possible that some of you are going, wait a minute, I thought you just said that there wasn't a tension in human nature. Okay, if you have that question, because she says here the opposite, there is a struggle and that, that this is the greatest battle that's ever fought, the yielding or the surrendering or the giving in to God's will and to God's saving will and to his holiness. Okay, here's the point of clarification. We are anthropologically, ontologically whole. We are one being. We are, a comp you compress, you know, this is what's described in the creation account, that God made man a living soul by taking the dust and the, the breath or the ruach and the New Testament nua and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and then man became a living soul. You can think of this as a unibody construction. He's not two things. He's, he's, he was two things that were shoved together, pressed together divinely, and then those two things make a human being. So that there is no sense in which a body apart from the spirit or a spirit apart from the body retains its humanity. So in that sense, we are not in tension, right? We, we're not, to, again, to, to, we don't follow the Greeks in that sort of anthropological dualism, but there most certainly is a tension in our nature. That is to say, our nature is, you can just hear this, we are made in the image of God, but we are fallen, and as we've already heard in this book, selfishness has taken the place of love, and as we just read a moment ago, by nature we are now alienated from God, so there is a tension there. And the desire to pull or to draw our nature, our fallen nature, back into harmony with God's original creational intent, our divine nature, our image-bearing nature, there is tension there. And she says there's, this is the greatest battle that's ever fought, and it requires a struggle. 
Um, and that's what we're going to talk about. How, how all of us that are followers of Jesus, we know this struggle, we know it intimately, we know it, you know, incorrigibly. It's, it's, a, it's the way the world is. It's the way our internal world is. We want to be better and better versions of ourselves. We feel the pull of our nature, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the allure of the world, and we also feel the allure of holiness. How do we align ourselves wholly, entirely, all with God? That's what this chapter is about. Okay, so she's just setting the table here. Now, if we're going to talk about this, we're going to have to introduce, unsurprisingly, Satan. Because there's a conflict going on. This isn't just taking place. It's not just an internal conflict. It is that, but it's not only that. There's an external conflict. And the external conflict is that God has an adversary, a Satan, the word means adversary, the enemy, and that enemy is purposefully seeking to obscure and obfuscate who God is. And so we find ourselves not only with this internal conflict, but this external conflict, and that's exactly where she goes in the next paragraph. I'm on page 63, 44 of the original. Paragraph goes like this. The government of God is not as Satan would make it appear. And I, I'm just going to go back to this. We've done it several times already, but let's just remind ourselves that that is Satan's MO, going all the way back to our chapter. Um, was it the sinner's need of Christ or was it was it God God's love for man, right? Am I right? All the way back to chapter one. I know I've read this before. I'm going to read it again, and I'll probably read it again and again. Thus, all these, uh, though all these evidences have been given, I'm reading on page 20, 11 of the original, though all these evidences have been given, the enemy of good blinded the minds of men so that they looked upon God with fear. They thought of him as severe and unforgiving. Satan led men to conceive of God as a being whose chief attribute is, and we've done this before, stern justice, one who is a severe judge, a harsh and exacting creditor. He pictured the creator as a being who is watching with a jealous eye to discern the errors and mistakes of men that he may visit judgments upon them. And then, of course, it was to remove this dark shadow of that picture that was just painted by revealing to the world the infinite love. And we're going to get another infinite in today's chapter, by the way. The infinite love of God that Jesus came to live among men. So she's right back at this notion that there's not only an internal conflict that we face in this wrestling between the allure of our carnal nature and the fallen world and the allure of the gospel, right? But there's this external conflict that's taking place that's cosmic. And so the government of God is not as Satan would make it appear. There it is. Founded upon a blind submission and unreasoning control. And I love this next sentence, and I hope you do too. It appeals to the intellect and to the conscience. That is to say, God's governing style appeals to the intellect and it appeals to the conscience. Why? Well, because as we're going to see, it retains and maintains human individuality and free will and volition, which is what we talked about yesterday. It's one of the reasons that confession needs to be made, because in order for David to retain all of the, the thing that is David Asherickness, I have to maintain a significant amount of self-determination. And so that's exactly what she says. It appeals to our intellect. It makes sense to us. She continues, Come now, let us reason together as the Creator's invitation to the beings He has made, Isaiah 1.18. God does not force the will of His creatures. He cannot accept an homage that is not willingly and intelligently given. Amen. A mere forced submission would prevent all, there's that word, all real development of mind or character. It would make man a mere automaton. I'm not sure I pronounced that word right. Is it a, a, a automaton? 
automaton? I don't know. I've always said automaton, but I might be pronouncing that word totally wrong. The word means robot or puppet. I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, it would make man a mere robot. Such is not the purpose of the creator. He desires that mankind, the crowning work of his creative power, shall reach the highest possible development. He sets before us the height of blessing to which he desires. I like that two times. He desires. He desires. God has desires. And his desires is our development, our salvation, our renewal and restoration. Woo! He desires to bring us through his grace. Uh, he invites us to give ourselves to him that he may work his will in us. It remains for us to choose whether we will be set free from the bondage of sin to share the glorious liberty of the sons of God. There's the freedom notion again, and there's a lot going on in this paragraph. Let's just note a few things. First of all, this is an appeal to your intelligence. It's an appeal to human beings to step back away from the circumstance in which we find ourselves and see that God is choosing the best of all possible options here. He's appealing to our intellect and to our conscience because he wants us to willingly and intelligently give ourselves to him. Not out of, as she says, blind submission or unreasonable control. Nobody likes to be controlled. We all understand intuitively that to control another person, to force another person, to coerce another person is wrong. That's a very low moral standard if it's a moral standard at all. God's aiming for the highest moral standard, which is our own self-governance, our own personal, volitional, voluntary, enthusiastic development in holiness toward God. And two times in this paragraph, she uses the word invite or invitation. So God is wooing, God is drawing, God is inviting, he's asking, he's appealing to our mind. Makes a lot of sense. It's really beautiful. But Satan is seeking to cloud that so that we see God in a certain way, all those words that we describe, severe, harsh, harsh, exacting, etc. Now, next paragraph. In giving ourselves to God, we must necessarily give up all, here it is, that would separate us from him. That makes sense. Because again, we're not bifurcated. Right? Like, just use a spousal love here, right? I began by talking about Violetta and the, the love I have for her and how much I love her. I can't love Violetta with 40, 50, 60, or 70% of my being. I either love her or I don't. And I love her with all of my being. I love her emotionally. I love her uh, bodily. I love her physically, which is kind of the same. I, I love her spiritually in all of the capacities that I possess. I love her as a mother. I love her as a wife. I love her as a lover. I love her as a friend. I love her as a, a rock climbing partner. I love her in all the ways. Okay, so, so our love for God is similar in that we either are in or we're out because there's no bifurcation in our nature, right? It's not that the spirit tends toward God. No, there is a sense, as we're already describing, in which the pull toward the world or toward God is a, is a wrestling match that we're in the middle of. That's true. We're going to talk about how that resolves the denouement of that. But in the sense that we're describing here, we're either all in or we're not. That, that just makes sense, right? Like my wife would not be satisfied with me, you know, mostly loving her, right? No, on April 4th, 1999, I didn't promise to, to give her 80% or 70% or 50%. Now, the promise was 100% and I expected that to be reciprocated, right? I'm all for you, you're all for me. And this relationship, this covenantal relationship that we have with God is the same. So in giving ourselves to God, we must necessarily give up all that would separate us from him. Hence, the Savior says, whoever of you does not forsake all, 
that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that this is just logical, right? In, in, in a lot of places, just by way of illustration here, in a lot of places that, that will employ you or give you a job, they will have a no moonlighting clause. And moonlighting means you work for us, and we're paying you, hopefully, a good salary, a reasonable salary, and we don't want you on the side moonlighting and doing other things because we want your full attention. Now, this isn't all jobs, but a lot of jobs are like that. that. Like in the military, for example. If you work for the military, you cannot go moonlight on the side. At least you couldn't back when my father was in the military. I don't know. Maybe it's changed, but I don't think so. I think if you're in, you're in, and you're all in. Continuing on, whatever will draw away the heart from God must be given up. Mammon or money is the idol of many. She goes through sort of an itemization here of things that pull. This isn't an exhaustive itemization. There are many things that pull people away. None of them are, are you know, the kinds of things that should draw us away or, or we should allow to draw us away, but lots of things. Lots of different kinds of people, lots of different interests, lots of different desires. So she says, uh, mammon is the idol of many. The love of money, the desire for wealth, is the golden chain that binds them to Satan. Reputation and worldly honor are worshipped by another class. The life of selfish ease and freedom from responsibility is the idol of others. But these, and I like this language here, slavish bonds. Woo! Well, there you have it. Slavish bonds. And notice the language, this Exodus language of freedom and then now slavery. We've already talked about freedom twice. Right? Already mentioned, it was mentioned right there, God desires to heal us and set us free. We must choose whether we will be set free from the bondage of sin. So we've got this Exodus language, this slavery language. Um, these slavish bonds must be broken. We cannot be half the Lord's and half the world's. We are not God's children unless we are such entirely. And there's a synonym for all. Whole, holy, entirely, all. And, and that just makes sense. We can't be half here and half here. If your employer won't go for that, and if your spouse won't go for that, how's God going to go for that? Are his requirements and his demands less, um, <laughs> less uh, uh, strong and desirous than, than you know, your employers or your spouses? Well, no, of course not. Right? Jesus on one occasion said, you know, somebody said, hey, I want to follow you, but, you know, I think this is Luke 14. But I, I need to go and, and bury my dad first. And Jesus is like, yeah, nah. No, 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 no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. This, this is Jesus' way of saying, all in. Let the dead bury their dead. And that strikes our modern ears as like, whoa, that's really intense. But it's it makes sense. If God is trying to recreate us, if he's trying to renew us, well, we don't want a partial recreation. I mean, when you're born again, that's a whole transformation of body, mind, and soul, right? So that's what the chapter is about. It's about being all in. Now, of course, the, the fly in the ointment here, the wrinkle in the shirt here is that it's hard for us to go all in. And even when we do go, go all in, we fall, we fail, we make mistakes. Okay, that's not the point. We'll get to those chapters, but the point is, can we all agree and assent to the basic point that's being made here? If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we want to be as best as best of disciples we can be. We want to be in. And, and the argument that she's going to make, and she's building toward this, is if God gave all for us, how could we give less than that for him? She's going there. All right, next paragraph. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts. Okay, now this is crucial. She's going to throw in 
the, the important and imperative righteousness by faith theological wrinkle that in the intellectual sense, which we can all make, that if I'm going to be for God, I'm going to be all for God, we have to be careful that we don't cross over that line whereby we think that my desire and the call of God that I be all for him, somehow then the responsibility for that being all in is now devolves back on my efforts. No, and Ellen White's going to thread the needle here, and she's going to do it, in my opinion, masterfully by helping us to see that while we are all in in our choice and in our yielding and in our surrender and in our giving in and giving up, we are not all in in the sense that by our own efforts, we are attaining something. Like we talked about yesterday, it's not attainment, it's acknowledgement. Okay, so watch what she does here. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts to obey his law, to form a right character, and to secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ, but they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Notice the language here. Secure, gain, perform. Right, That's the language. That's the language. And she's saying it's not that. It's not something we secure. It's not something we gain. It's not something we perform. Well, what is it then? And what she does here is masterful and beautiful. She actually says, and she just blows this righteousness by works or, or human effort. She just blows it right out of the water. She says, such religion is worth nothing. Well, there you have it. I mean, she's not mincing words here. Such religion is worth nothing when Christ, and then now she turns the corner. This is how it works. That's not, that's how it doesn't work. This is how it does work. When Christ dwells in the heart, okay, there we go. Christ then is in me. He is the vivifying, energizing, enervating power. See the difference? See the difference? It's the difference between all that the Lord has spoken we will do and without me you can do nothing. It's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is what it is. When Christ dwells in the heart, kaboom, the soul will be so filled with his love, now we're getting somewhere, with the joy of communion with him. Notice the language here. Notice this, all this different language, right? Dwells, heart, soul, love, joy, communion, as contrasted with rely upon their own efforts, secure salvation, perform duties, attain. These are There's a purposeful contrast here. Let's continue. I'm going to start again. When Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with his love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him. That's a great word, my friends. It means that we will join to him. We will be bound to him. We will be riveted to him. Well, how so? Because he's in us, literally dwelling in us by his spirit. We will cleave to him, and in the contemplation of him, self will be forgotten. Love to Christ will be the spring of action. Notice it's not duty. It's, it's not primarily duty. There is certainly a duty element, but it's not attainment. It's not securing. It's not performance. It's love. It's love. Go back to the spousal connection very quickly. Why is it that Violetta is the number one in my life? Out of duty? Out of obligation? Do I have duties to my wife? Of course I do. But you know, I almost never think about the duties because I love her. I, I love spending time with her and I love it when she spends time with me. So yeah, you could say that there is underneath, you know, there are requirements and I did make promises and I want to keep those promises. And so there is a duty slash responsibility element, but that almost never surfaces because I shouldn't say never. I mean, it rarely surfaces because 
I just want to be a blessing to her, and I love her, and I love it when she's happy. I love making her happy. She loves making me happy. And so when you have love, whether you're talking about a horizontal relationship or a vertical, you're not spending a lot of time thinking like, have I done enough? Am I attaining? Am I performing? Am I securing? No, I'm loving. It's relational versus religious. Okay. Those who feel the constraining love of God. Wow, that is a fascinating juxtaposition. Constraining, which literally sounds like what it means to, to be compelled, to be constrained, to be urged, to be under the unction, right? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the love of Christ constrains us. Some translations compels us. Some translations urges us. It's a fascinating tension and juxtaposition there, but it's true that, that under the love of Christ, we voluntarily feel, enthusiastically feel, joyfully feel the constraining draw of his love, the, the urging of his love, but it's voluntary. God doesn't short-circuit our will. He, he energizes our will. He resurrects our will. He vivifies and empowers our will. That's where she's going. The constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard, but aim. Ooh, ooh. That is a crucially important word. Circle that word. Underline that word. In, my, in mine here, I've double underlined it. Let me show you right there. You find it. Aim. Double underlined. Double underlined. That's crucial. Even back to my spousal relationship. I have an amazing relationship with Violetta. Uh, my, in my marriage, I... Do I, am I the perfect husband? No, not even close, but I aim to be the best husband I can be. Do I always hit the mark? No, but I'm, I'm aiming for it, right? I'm aiming. Aim is the crucial word there, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their redeemer, their rescuer. With earnest desire, they yield all. And I might as well tell you right now, those two words are the two words, and they're in they're right next to one another there. They're in perfect side-by-side -side juxtaposition. Yield all. Those are my words, and I'm conflicted. Because over and over and over again in this chapter, yield, 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 yield. And we're going to come back to the importance of yielding. In fact, why come back to it? Let's just talk about it now. What does the word yield mean? Okay, the verb yield means, are you ready for this? It means to give in. I actually looked up synonyms for yield, and it can actually mean like to relax, to, to yield, to relax, to give in. There's a lot of synonyms here. To submit, to surrender, right? That God is drawing, God is wooing, God is attracting. And when we yield, we give in to that wooing, we give in to that attraction. And when we yield, we don't yield some, we don't yield most, we yield all. Look at that. With earnest desire, they yield all joyfully, enthusiastically, thankfully, with gratitude in their hearts. We yield all and manifest an interest proportionate to the value of the object which they seek. Well, the value of the object is, of course, God himself, who's infinitely valuable, and salvation, which is also infinitely valuable because it is a product of God's goodness and grace. Now, let me just share with you something that is mind-blowing. This language, which she purposefully uses, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in this chapter, chapter, yield, 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 stands in stark contrast to what we talked about when Ty was here 
Let me just read this to you. Let me remind you. Uh, let's see, I'm going back a little too far. Repentance chapter. Listen to this. Listen to the tension here. You ready? Page 42 of Types and Symbols and uh, 28 of the original. And Ty and I made hay talking about this. We went deep on this because it was the thing that impressed Ty and myself, I think, the most in the whole chapter of Repentance, which again is an 11 out of 10 chapter. Listen to this. Page 42. The sinner may, now listen to the language, resist this love. Well, resist would be the opposite of or an antonym of what word? Yield. Yield. See, there are forces, external forces and internal forces that are pulling us this way and this way, right? And, and the primary force, yeah, the world is pulling us. Yes, she itemized those things earlier. Money pulls and fame pulls and lust pulls and, and uh, sort of a careless freedom pulls. Yeah, that's true. That's a pull on us. But over here, the gospel's pulling on us. And the gospel pulls with greater power, with greater force, because it appeals to the intellect. It, it's attractive. It makes sense. And, and it's beautiful. And, and so we're being pulled this way, too. So we're, we're being pulled. And so this is what's so awesome. We can resist this pulling or... Now, let me just keep reading it. The sinner may resist this love, may refuse, synonym, refuse, to be drawn to Christ. Oh, I didn't underline that drawn there. I'd underlined all the drawns, and I somehow missed that one may be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist, he will be drawn. Well, there you have it. This is the opposite of what she's describing this chapter, because if we don't resist and we don't refuse, we will be drawn. So what's our role then? Think it through. What's our role? Yield. We yield. What do we yield? All. Do we do it perfectly? I don't. But do you know what I do? I aim to do it perfectly. I aim to yield all. Do I fall short? Do I make a mistake? Do I sometimes? Yes. Yes, I do. I, I am not a perfect follower of Jesus, but I am a follower of Jesus. And happily for me and happily for you, Jesus is perfect. And that's what we need, right? We don't, we don't need ourselves to be perfect. We need our Savior to be perfect, but we can aim. We can aim for the highest standard. Do you think I'm aiming to be the best let me just use a, a trivial example. I aim to be the best rock climber I can be, right? I, uh, I mean, I can climb at the lower levels. It's not even difficult for me to climb at the lower levels. I have fun. I enjoy doing it, especially if the position is great or the moves are great. Yeah, but I aim to climb at the highest possible levels, right? Would I love to be able to climb at these, you know, elite levels, 514 and above? Of course. I don't climb that hard, but, but do I climb... Much harder than 5'9", 5'10", 5'11". Do I climb 5'12", and 5'13"? Yes, I do. But I aim to climb as hard as I can. So if in a trivial thing, an inconsequential thing like climbing, fun though it be, if I'm aiming for the highest, well, then there is no shame in aiming to be the best disciple of Jesus I can be. I want to be the best dad I can be. I want to be the best husband I can be. See, see the, the thing that happens with people, man, and I can just feel it probably here, is that people, oh man, as soon as you start talking about, you know, aiming and trying to be the best, all of a sudden it sounds like it's by their own efforts, but we've already crossed that bridge. This is not attainment. This is not performance. This is not by our own efforts. This is, how does she say it? How does she say it? When Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him, and in the contemplation of himself will be forgotten. Love to Christ will be the spring of the action. 
And there's no shame in that. Disobedience, rather, gets a bad word. It gets a bad rap. Obedience is not a bad word, my friend. Obedience is awesome. It's like people act like, oh, no, don't talk to me about obedience. Don't talk to me about holiness. Don't talk to me about righteousness. Why not? As we're going to see, our holiness and our happiness are not two different things. They're the same thing, right? You want to be maximally happy? Then you would want to be maximally holy. That is to say, maximally like God. (laughs) So it's not difficult to keep these things in mind, to bear both of these things in mind, that we aim to be the best disciples that we can be, to be the best followers that we can be of Jesus, the best evangelists that we can be, the best disciples that we can be the best witnesses that we can be, do we fall short? Of course we do. And never for a moment do we imagine that our performance or lack thereof is the grounds upon which we're accepted by God. Heaven forbid, we're accepted by God because we're accepted in the beloved and Jesus has reconciled him, uh, has reconciled us to himself by his perfect sacrifice and his perfect obedience. So as soon as you cross that bridge and you just get that anxiety and fear behind you, now you can say, well, why wouldn't I want to be the best follower of Jesus I could be? Out of joy, out of love, out of happiness, and frankly, as I said there, out of a desire to be maximally happy. God wants me to be maximally happy. He wants me to be healed. He wants me to be free. Amen. So I aim at perfect conformity. Okay, continuing on here. With earnest desire, they yield all. There's my two words. And man, I'm back and forth. Pray for me. Yield all and manifest an interest proportionate to the value of the object which they seek. A profession of Christ without, and I love this language, this deep love. This deep love is mere talk. It's dry formalism. It's heavy drudgery. Exactly. If you aim for obedience and you aim to be the best possible Christian, and you don't have the sense of peace that comes from relying totally on the righteousness of Christ, well, then, yeah, that's hard. That's hard. I get it. I get it. Elise was here. She talked about her wrestling with legalism and, and the, the, the formality and the drudgery and the anxiety and fear and confusion that that produces. I get it. But that's not what I'm talking about. And that's not what she's talking about. No, 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 no. Out of the well of this deep love. And you might be tempted to think, all the deep love here is my love for God. Well, yes and no. Our love for God can be deep, you know, by our human standards, but our love for God is shallow. I mean, insignificantly shallow relative to God's love for us. That's what I said in my prayer there. The big story here is not our love for you. That's a mere reflection of God's love for us. But it's not nothing. My good friend John Peckham wrote a book on this called The Love of God, A Canonical Model. And one of the most amazing things in that book, which is not an easy book to read, but it's an incredibly insightful book, is that there is a a bilateral, a back and forth, a mutually beneficial beauty to love. God loves our love. It's awesome. And there are some versions of Christianity, and I'm not going to go down that road. There are some versions of, of, of uh, sort of mainstream Christianity that says God is, you know, is so perfect in his being that he doesn't, he's not moved by our love. He's not benefited by our love. Our love doesn't make him happy. He's just perfect in his being. And he couldn't benefit from anything, or he couldn't be blessed by anything that we give back because that would suggest that God was lacking somehow. 
again, Peckham deals with all of that in his book, and it doesn't even make sense. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. The way that the Bible communicates to us in Scripture is that God is an emotional being, that God is a, a being, as we've already talked about, a God-named desire. He loves us, and when we love him, just like any parent, he loves when, our, when his own love is reflected back to him. It brings him joy. And notice the language keeps coming up here, the language of joy. Carrying on here. Do you feel that it is too great a sacrifice to yield all? There it is again. Wow, you can see why I'm struggling. Yield all. It's, it's, it's almost like she's torturing me on purpose here. What is the word? It can't be two words. I just can't do it. It's, it's yield or it's all. I'm not sure. And there's a lot of synonyms for both, right? Like in here, we have, we have she talks about give up and give in and surrender and submit and even consent. All those words occur here. But then we have a lot of synonyms uh, for, for all. We have entire, we have whole, we have holy, we have entirely. I'm conflicted. Okay, let's keep reading. Do you feel that it is too great a sacrifice to yield all to Christ? Ask yourself this question. What has Christ given for me? Ah, there you go. There you go. Ask yourself that question. What did he give? Well, watch what she, you know what she's going to do here, even before you read it. If you're paying attention, you know what she's going to say. She's going to say, Exactly what you expect her to say. The Son of God gave all. There's our word. He yielded all when he cried out on Calvary's cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Literally in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, it says he yielded up his life. That's what the text says. He yielded up his life. He yielded all to his Father. So the invitation to us is to yield all not a partial yielding, right? Not a 50-50 not a yielding, not a half-baked, half-cooked yielding, not a qualified yielding, a yielding of all, body, mind, and soul, just like you do, again, in a marital relationship. The Son of God gave all. He gave life and love and suffering for our redemption. And can it be that we, the unworthy objects of so great a love, will withhold our hearts from him? You can just hear her incredulity. Can it be? Can it be? Every moment of our lives, we have been partakers of the blessing of his grace, and I love what she does here. And for this very reason, we cannot fully realize the depths of ignorance and misery from which we have been saved. There is so much profundity in that statement right there. I literally wrote here in the margin, I just wrote, wow, wow. This is what she's saying. She's saying, we are such the beneficiaries of God's saving power and saving love that we don't even know, we don't even realize the depths of, two words, ignorance and misery from which we have been saved. We don't even know. Like the little child that's about ready to walk into the street and be absolutely obliterated by an oncoming car is then jerked back and saved. All the child knows is that its arm, its arm hurts because mom or dad pulled it back and it wanted to go play in the road, but the child doesn't know. The child has no, I mean, a, a two-year-old child or a three-year-old child has no concept of their mortality or really even of danger, right? And so that's, that's what, we don't even know how ignorant and miserable we would be, but for, she says, every moment of our lives, suffused with, saturated with the blessings of God's grace. This is why, and I haven't yet got it uploaded, but I'm still working on it. By the grace of God, it'll happen tomorrow. The uploading of the supplemental session with Elise, and one of the things we talk about is something that Ty mentioned as well, that, that really 
When you have two people together, there are not two people there, there are six people there. There's what each person thinks of himself, what each person thinks of the other person, and then the unknown person that neither has access to. Something I don't know about myself and something that nobody knows about me. And God has access to this. And that's what she's tapping into here. That there is an unknown, mysterious part to all of us that but for the blessings of God, we would be so steeped in misery and ignorance, we ourselves don't even perceive it. We are so under the grace of God and the goodness of God and the blessing of God that we don't even know how profound our rescue is, and we will not know until the hereafter. Only then will we understand, fully understand. We can partially understand it now, as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, but I love, love, love that. I'm going to read it again. Every moment of our lives, we have been partakers of the blessings of his grace. And for this very reason, we cannot fully realize the depths of ignorance and misery from which we have been saved. Wow. Can we look upon him whom our sins have pierced and yet be willing to show contempt for all his love and sacrifice? In view of the infinite humiliation, there's another infinite phrase. So what do we have now? Infinite love, we have infinite pity, we have infinite power. I might even be missing one. Infinite sacrifice. And now we have the fifth of our infinite collection, infinite humiliation. In view of the infinite humiliation of the Lord of glory, shall we murmur because we can enter into life only through this struggle, this conflict, and the pushing down, the abasement of self? Abasement means just push, literally, abasement. Look at the word basement. What's abasement? It's, it's the lowest floor in a house. In other words, in pushing down our carnal nature that wants to pull us this way, Satan's way, the world's way. He's like, <laughs> you thought this was going to be easy? wasn't easy for Jesus. Why should it be easy for us? And again, I know when people hear that, they're like, oh, I don't want to be. Don't talk to me about how it's hard, how it's a struggle, how it's a conflict, how it's difficult. I'm sorry, I have to be true to scripture. It, it, what's the problem with saying that it's a struggle? It, now, it becomes less and less of a struggle the more and more and more glorious we see God to be. I mean, many of the things that I used to struggle with, I look back now and I chuckle. I'm just like, that? that thing was a struggle for me? And now, 10 years later, 15 years later, when it's insignificant to me, I just laugh at it. It's like, man, how could that have ever been in competition with the God who gave all for me on Calvary and who died to redeem me, who created me in his image? In fact, Ellen White's going to go to a place here where she's like, when I even think about the things that people compare with giving all to God, she's like, I'm ashamed to even write it down. She's going to go there in just a second. Great writing. Okay, next paragraph. The inquiry of many a proud heart is, why need I go in penitence and humiliation before I can have assurance of my acceptance with God? Exactly. That's pride. Why do I have to? It's like the Pharisee there in Luke 18 that we've already talked about. I'm, I'm glad I'm not like these people. I don't need to humble myself. I'm actually doing all right. Thank you. And then she just says, and this is what the whole book is about, I point you to Christ. You! Exactly. I point you to Christ. I point you to Christ. He was sinless, and more than this, he was the prince of heaven. Try that on for size. But in man's behalf, he became sin for the race. And then quoting from Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. Next paragraph. And then this is the point where Ellen White just 
Jesus blows our sinful pride out of the water, our suggestion that we, why am I required to yield all? She's like, well, he yielded all. Don't you love? I mean, don't you see? You must not see Calvary clearly enough for you to even be asking such a stupid question. Really, that's what she's saying. She said, he doesn't say it like that, of course, but I wouldn't mind it if she did. But what do we give up when we give up all, give all, yield all? Here she goes. She goes in hard here, and I love this. This is a section to memorize, by the way. This should be committed to memory. What I'm doing is I'm writing down M-E-M on all the things that I want to memorize. And I think I'm up to like six. At the end, I'll take a picture of all my memorization sections, or maybe not even at the end. Some Along the way, I'll say, these are the sections I'm committing to memory. And then you can commit your own to memory, but if you want to know the ones that just jump out to me and I think, you know what? I need that locked in. I need that as a part of the, the furniture of the my intellectual landscape. I need that stuck in my brain. And this I need stuck in my brain. But what do we give up when we give up all? A sin-polluted heart for Jesus to purify, to cleanse by his own blood and save by his matchless love. And yet men and women think it hard to give up all. I am ashamed to hear it spoken of, ashamed to write it. Woo! Talk to us, Ellen. Go in. Go hard. She continues. I want to memorize all this. God does not... Re oh, man, this is so good. God does not require us to give up anything, to yield anything that it is for our own best interest to retain. In all that he does, he has the well-being of his children in view. Would that all who have not chosen Christ might realize that he has something, crucially important phrase, vastly better, not just better, not marginally better, not fractionally better, vastly better to offer them than they are seeking for themselves. That's what I'm saying. Your holiness and your happiness are not two things. They're one thing. Man is doing the greatest injury and injustice to his own soul when he thinks and acts contrary to the will of God, holiness and happiness. No real joy can be found in the path forbidden by him who knows what is best. Of course he knows who's best. He made us. Of course. And who plans for the good of his creatures. The path of transgression is the path of misery and destruction. Now, I know that you think this is the end of the section I want to memorize. It's not yet. I want to memorize this paragraph too. It is a mistake to even entertain the thought that God is pleased to see his children suffer. All heaven is interested in the happiness of mankind. Our Heavenly Father does not close the avenues of joy to any of his creatures. The divine requirements call upon us to shun the indulgences that would bring suffering and disappointment to us, that would close the door of happiness in heaven to us, our own happiness. I'm still memorizing here. The world's Redeemer accepts men as they are, exactly, with all their wants and perfections and weaknesses. Thank the Lord, because I got all those. And he will not only cleanse from sin and grant redemption through his blood, I'm still memorizing, but will satisfy the heart longing of all who consent, yield, to wear his yoke, to bear his burden. It is his purpose to impart peace and rest to all who come to him for the bread of life. He requires us to perform only those duties that will lead our steps to heights of bliss, that is to say joy, happiness, all synonyms, to which the disobedient can never attain. The true joyous life of the soul is to have Christ formed within the hope of glory. I want to memorize that whole section. All of that from, but what do we give up all the way down to Christ formed within the hope of glory? That is so good. That is so 
well communicated. It is so biblically profound. It is so spot on. Come on now. And I just wrote here on the margin, holiness and happiness. All right, we're almost done. Yeah. Many are inquiring how. Okay, now we get down to the sort of mechanics of it. Like we talked about the mechanics of confession yesterday. How? Okay, I, I, I'm sold. I'm in. But how? Talk to me about the practice of it, the mechanics of it. I want this to be uber practical. Well, happily for us, it is. Watch this. Many are inquiring, how am I to make a surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself, to yield to him, but you are, and here we go again, this is pure gold. That's what I wrote in the margin, pure gold. You could keep memorizing if you wanted. You desire to give yourself to him, but you got a problem. You're weak in moral power, check, in slavery to doubt. Yeah, sometimes. I wouldn't say slavery. I mean, I've been walking with Jesus now for 30 years. He's washed away a lot of my doubts. But many still in slavery to doubt and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Yeah, sometimes that's me too. Yeah, definitely weak in moral power, and I can relate to the others. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sands. Yeah, check. Ropes of sand, I can relate. You cannot control your thoughts. Yeah, not all the time. Check. Your impulses, your affections. Yeah, no, check. I get it. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity. Been there. Sometimes still am there. Causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. Well, yeah, caused me to feel that way. Now, I know that the text of Scripture doesn't teach that. I know that Jesus says, come to me, all you that are, are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But sometimes I do admit, in my lower moments, I feel that God cannot accept me. And then this line, underline it. She goes through all of that, that long list. And even veteran followers of Jesus, they got to admit, some of that, that shoe fits. But how about this? You need not despair. Take that word but there and just take out your pen. I'm going to do it right now. Take out your pen and just really get after that. So it looks like that. But... But, see that great big circle there? But, she goes through that long list. And, and, you know, for some of you, every one of those shoes might fit and might fit perfectly. Okay, even if it does. Even if every one of those shoes fits you and fits you perfectly. But, don't despair. You don't need to despair. <laughs> Why not? Well, because those are exactly the kinds of people that Jesus came to save. Jesus knows what he's getting when he gets you. He knows you better than you know you. And so if you're tempted to look in and think, I know my innermost secrets. I know that my promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. I know myself perfectly. You do not know yourself perfectly. You know yourself well. You know yourself better than anybody not named God. So you know yourself better than anybody knows you. Any human being knows you. But God knows you perfectly. God knows you exhaustively and yet he still loves you. I have used this sermon illustration in the past, and I'll just quickly repeat it here. If you've ever purchased something that was a lemon, like you purchased a car and it didn't work right, or you purchased a, an electronic device and you, know, you bought it used and it was a lemon, or you ordered something and it looked really great and it didn't turn out to be great, you ask yourself the question, why did you buy a lemon? Why did you buy something that wasn't worth what you paid for it? Well, I'll tell you why. You didn't know it wasn't worth it. You didn't know. In your ignorance, you made a bad investment. You purchased that stock and it went down. Why did you purchase that? What, are you stupid? No, you're not stupid. You just don't know all the things. But friends, here's the thing. When God paid an infinitely high price for you and for me and for the whole of humanity, 
He knew, even better than we ourselves know ourselves, he knew what he was getting. He knew what he was getting. And that's why, even if all of those shoes fit you there, in slavery to doubt, promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand, can't control you know, your own thoughts, impulses, or affections, even if all of those shoes fit perfectly, don't despair. Because God knows you better than you know yourself. He knew what he was getting. He knew what he was getting when he was getting you. He knew it. He knew it. But you need not despair. Well, I still want to understand the mechanics of it. What about the how? How do I? How then do I make a surrender? And then she says, this is simple. And it actually is really simple. It's so simple that she really is at the end of the chapter here. And it only takes really two paragraphs to explain it. It's just that simple. She's like, what? You need all child, all honey, right? Like down in the South, all hun, all child, all sugar. I can just hear it. Oh, what you need to understand is the true force of the will. It's so simple. I never, I had no plans to do some half-baked female Southern accent, but I hear it in my mind's eye. Like we have all this anxiety, we have all this confusion, we have all this trepidation, and I can just hear the reassuring voice of some, you know, Southern bells. Oh, honey, oh, it's going to be just fine. What you need to understand. I don't. I had no plan to do that. I don't think I've ever done it in my whole life in a public setting, but it just, I don't know. These things are, this is just how it happens. It's unscripted. What you need to understand, hun, is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will, sugar. The power of choice God has given to man, it's theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot, of yourself, give to God its affections but you can choose. Can't you hear it? I hope this isn't too cringy. I'm having fun. You can choose to serve him. Oh, sugar, listen. You can give him your will. He will then work in you. Oh, he works in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He will work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And then this word, thus. Thus, these little words are so important. Single syllable, four letters, thus. And the word thus means in this way. In this way, thus. This is how, in this way, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. How? how? I missed it, I missed it. Oh, you choose to give your will to God. And God gets it. <laughs> Again, God knows perfectly. He's not like, oh man, what is this? Look at this will. This will is tattered. This will is in shreds. What am I going to do with this will? This will has been violated. This will has been uh, mutilated. This will has been neglected. Oh, I can't. There's nothing I can do here. Well, I can't work with this will. No, God knows what he's getting. God knows what he's getting. He's not surprised by the weakness of your will. But the point that she's making here is such a sublime and such a profoundly important point. We don't do it. We choose, we will to give our will to God. Then God takes our will and he recreates it. He refashions it. He remakes it. This is exactly what the psalmist was driving at, David, in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's like, I, I'm willing to be willing. So we hand our will over to God, and God looks at it. He knows what it is. You're not surprised by it. He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what this needs? 
This needs my creative power. I got to start from scratch on this one. And fortunately for you, I can create something out of nothing. I'm really good at it, actually. I said, let there be light, and there was light. I said, let there be land, and there was land. I'm good. I can just, you know what I can do? I can just discard this old will that is so sold out to self and Satan and sin, and I can just go, new creature in Christ Jesus, here's your new will. Now, the problem with us, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just flying by the seat of my pants here. The problem with us is we don't know how to drive this new will. We're bad at it because we're used to that old will, that old will that's bossing us around, and, and we're not very good at it, and we're really just yielding to sin, self, Satan, and the world. And so it does take us a little while to learn how to drive this new will, this new nature. It doesn't happen in a moment. Salvation happens in a moment. The assurance of salvation happens in a moment. But learning to drive this new will, learning to yield all to God, now that takes time. I'm 30 years deep here, and it takes time. I'm not, I'm not totally 30 years in. Let's see, I was baptized when I was like 23, and I'm 50, so I'm close. But I'm learning to lean into this new will, this new nature that God is giving me. And like I say, there are some things that I look back and I just chuckle to myself. I think, how was that ever a struggle for me? How was that a struggle for me? I look back at it now and it's funny to me. I feel like Illinois, it's a, it's a shame that that was ever a struggle. Well, you know what happens, friends? That's just growth. That's just maturity. That's just walking with Jesus. That's just growing in grace. And again, to make the point, at no point ever is your standing with God or your status with God as one of his daughters or one of his sons based on your ability to drive your new will. No, you're there because of the righteousness of Christ. I know I keep saying it, but that's the point. It's his perfect will. But I want to learn to yield all. It's in this way, that word thus, thus, in this way, the whole nature is brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. You know what happens? Your affections will be centered upon Him. Your thoughts will be in harmony with Him. Desires for goodness and holiness are right as far as they go, but if you stop there, they don't get you anything. Many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. They do not come to the point of, and this is the punchline of the whole thing, yielding. Yielding the what? The will to God. They do not they do not now choose to be Christians. We turn our will over to God. We will to give our will to God. That's what she means by yield. And I, I think that's got to be the word, right? I mean, the, the climax of the whole thing, the word all is all over, and we've seen it. Entirely, wholly, all, completely. But the word yield, it's got to be the word for me. It just has to be, because that's where she, the whole thing lands there. They do not come to the point of yielding the will to God. They do not now choose to be Christians. Last paragraph. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire synonym for all. See, just see, it's hard to choose. It's hard to choose. An entire change may be made in your life by yielding up your will to Christ. You, and I love this language, you ally yourself. That's cool language. You ally yourself with the power that is above all. There's our word again, man. It's so hard to choose between yield and all. That is above all principalities and powers. In other words, Satan is a defeated dog. He, he, has, he has nothing to say here. He's defeated. He's conquered. Sin is conquered. Death is conquered. The grave is conquered. It's like when you have yielded your will to Jesus, when you've, when you've turned your life over to him, when you've yielded all, when you've repented and confessed and you've given your life to Jesus, tattered though it be, 
Weak though it be, faulty though it be, frail though it be, disaster though it be, now you've allied, you've allied yourself with the power that is above all these principalities and powers. You will have strength from above to hold you steadfast, and thus through constant surrender to God, you will be enabled, enabled, empowered to live the new life, even the life of faith. And I just wrote here, wow, what a promise. That's a promise. Now, do I always attain to that? No, I do not. But I aim. I aim for it. I aim for it. And when I fail and when I fall and when I don't reach or attain to what I long to be, the best version of myself, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God is there to scoop me up. All right. So there we are. Let's go through our rubric Let's go through our rubric, and I'll take a picture of this. I was going to read this page, but I'll just take a picture of it and put it up in my notes on Instagram and Facebook because it's just every instance where she uses the word all, and it's the context and all the synonyms as well, whole, holy, entire, entirely. Okay, let's just quickly do the um, rubric here, the point. To me, this was an easy one. Holiness is found in yielding, or even more precisely, holiness is found in choosing to yield to God, choosing to yield. That's what this is all about. That's what this whole chapter is about. She opens with yield. She closes with yield. My word is yield. I love the idea here, and the synonyms are give up, give in, ally yourself, surrender. The person. Well, this is what we learn about the person. I mean, we learn a lot of things, but what I wrote down is, is that Jesus gave all that we might have all. Oh, I like that. Jesus gave all that we might have all. That's the point she makes. She makes that point expressly. She's like, you find it hard to give up all? Well, have you looked at Jesus? What did he give up? Some? A little bit? Most? All. Now, do I always give up all? No, I do not. I fail and I make mistakes. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do great. Sometimes I feel like I'm flying high and then I fall flat on my face. But happily, again, Jesus is there to scoop me up. I'm aiming for something. But as long as we don't conflate, and I know I've said this like five times, I'm going to say it again, because some people, some people really struggle with this, but as long as you don't conflate, your efforts that are a result of the saving status that you have with God because of the righteousness of Christ, with your desire just to be the best follower of Jesus you can be, as long as you don't conflate those things, you'll be totally fine. And this whole, you know, purported paradox, this alleged paradox between faith and works is not difficult to resolve, and we should stop pretending like it's hard to understand. It is not hard to understand. It is not hard to understand, and let's not pretend that it is. All right, the prayer. Father, Oh, please make me willing and make me willing to be willing. Teach me how to yield my will to you. Make me willing and make me willing to be willing. The practice, I want to learn to yield. I got to learn more and more what it means to yield, to give in, to give up, to ally myself. And I think there's a lot, you know, sort of practically speaking, time in the word, Time with a community of people that are helping you, growing you in the right direction, uh, putting the right kinds of things in front of your eyes. Um, these are all really practical things that you can do. Reading the right kind of materials, and 
I think that um, practically speaking, we can do a lot of things that make it easier to yield. Yeah. Okay, and then finally, the promise for me, I just wrote down the two promises on page 64 and 68. Here's the promise. Okay, here's the promise on page 64. This is a 44 of the original. Here's the promise. When Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with his love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him, and in the contemplation of him, self will be forgotten. Love to Christ will be the spring of action. Those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer. That's a promise. That's my promise. And then the one that I just read, very last paragraph there, 68, 48 of the original, through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in David Asherick's life. By yielding up his will to Christ, he allies himself with the power that is above all. He will have strength from above to hold him steadfast. And thus, through constant surrender to God, he will be enabled to live the new life, even the life of faith. That's my promise. That's my promise. My word is yield. I hope that was a great session. What were your words? What were your words? Still holding strong with 400 people tuned in live, even after an hour and 15 minutes. Okay, what are our words? Yield. Ollie. Yes. Choose. Choice. Choosing. Cece says, amen. Jim says, surrender, which is just like yield. Very good. I surrender my life, he says. Beautiful. Abdicate. Oh, that's good. I like that because it has the idea of a throne, right? That we give Jesus the throne. Okay, what else we got here? Choose, choose, ally, great. Whole, great. Yeah, that goes along with the, Cassandra, that goes along with the all. Yeah, you picked up on that too. Invitation, Inf infinite. Man, there's so many great infinites, aren't there, Johnny? Um, yield, 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 choose, aim, relax. Kendra, that's a great synonym for yield. I like that. That's actually really good advice. Relax, okay, entirely, yoke, I missed a couple there. Choose, uh, yield, choose, yoke, oh, yoke. Individuality, surrender, whole. Yeah, a lot of yields, a lot of surrenders, a lot of synonyms here for both all. You can see how it's one or the other, isn't it? Somebody says, I love this teaching. Hey, I love being here. I'll be honest, I look forward to it all day. I had fun climbing. I had more fun doing this. Oh, my sister-in-law says, surrender, yield. You got to pick one, Felicia. You got to pick one. Go with yield. Surrender, entire, filled. Bernice says, willful, good. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Rest, submission, above, give, all, renewed, renew, willing, give, I am kitty approved, David. I don't even know what that means. Empty, aim, entirety. Yeah, that's like the word all. One of the words she uses, yield. Somebody says, this is amazing. I agree. Jesus is amazing. Yeah, then Deb Snyder makes a great point that the word yield can also have as a verb, it means to surrender, to relax, to, to, to give in, to give up. But then as a noun, your yield is like with a crop, like it means to bear fruit. You know, farmers will talk about the yield. I remember growing up, uh, my granddad, who was a farmer, he would always talk about, you know, this year's yield and what the yield was looking like. That's a really cool play on words there. Okay, a few more. All, says Gabby Abby. Relinquish, says Nyatter Smith. Cleave. Oh, Tori, you picked up on that. Yeah, definitely. Jerry says Jesus is his word. Well, come on, Jerry, of course. 
That's, that's the word for every chapter. It's the steps to, the book is called Steps to Christ. Oh, somebody liked the Southern accent. I'm sorry. That was probably so cringy. <laughs> but I don't know why. It just came over me. I had no plans to do that. Popped into my mind, and I rolled with it. Yield. All right. Great stuff. Love you guys. I will see you tomorrow. Same time. What's our chapter tomorrow? I haven't even looked yet. Oh, faith and acceptance. Ooh. Is it long? Well, it's a little longer than today. Faith and acceptance tomorrow. Same time, same place. Love you all, and let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we want to be willing. We yield ourselves. And Father, sometimes we can't even do that. It just feels that sin and Satan and addiction and the allurements of this world have such a grasp on us. We feel that it's just choking the life, the spiritual life out of us. But Father, we just we just send out a cry like Peter. Lord, save me, I perish. And Father, whether we are veteran followers of you or we're fresh in the faith, I pray that at each of our individual stages with each of our unique personalities that we would be learning to yield, to relax, to give in, to trust. Father, I want to thank you for the SC with Reading Challenge. I love this book and I knew it was going to be awesome and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Father, may we come out of the other side of this reading challenge energized, enervated in our walk with you. Revive us, resurrect us, resuscitate us, and Father, breathe into us that breath of life that we may go forward and be the people that you've called us to be. Father, we're not going to always hit that mark. In fact, often we don't, but we're going to aim for it. We're going to aim for it. Father, Jesus yielded all for us. How can we yield any less for him? And we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.